Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson. From the title of the podcast, I think you're going to like this one. Uh, Corey Tutt is today's guest. He is doing amazing work through deadly science. He will tell you all about that on today's podcast. He was the New South Wales Young Australian of the Year and he has an amazing story to tell. Uh, it was my first time meeting him in person. Absolutely loved him. What a great kid. And I say a kid because, you know, He's young enough to be my kid, uh, just doing some brilliant work trying to change the world. And uh, I really admire admire Corey, but I also had a lot of laughs along the way as well in this episode. So if you enjoy listening to Corey on this, support Deadly Science. We give all the details in the podcast, but just Google Deadly Science and you'll be able to find all the information that you need. Speaking about supporting things, I am currently on a tour doing stand-up shows. Already done uh, 10 of my... Uh, uh, what you talking about will shows at the sydney comedy store best 10 of those that i have ever done uh loved them absolutely had a ball thank you to everybody who came out to do those shows and i'm very excited about doing 10 of those during the melbourne comedy festival the first time ever that i have done my improvised show what you talking about will at the melbourne international comedy festival it's on at the comedy theater for the second half of the festival the first half of the festival, of course, I will be doing my show, Will Legal, which is a return season of my show all about being arrested on the way to Wagga Wagga. So uh, an old show and a new show, uh, a new show every night. In fact, uh, that's what you'll get to see during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. But before that, I have some other dates. I am going to Brunswick Heads. So if you're on the uh, northern rivers of New South Wales, or well, you know, if you're on the Gold Coast, I'm flying into the Goldie. I can make it there from the Goldie. So... If you're on the Goldie and you want to come down and see a show, uh, but also the Northern Rivers of New South Wales, uh, Byron Bay, Brunswick Heads, that sort of area, I will be doing the Brunswick Picture House from next Tuesday uh, through to Sunday. So uh, come and see me do my well-informed show there. And then I'm off to the Adelaide Fringe. Missed Adelaide last year, so off to Adelaide for two weeks. Now, I will say this to my Adelaide friends, smaller venue than usual. Basically, we decided a little late that... uh, I was going to be able to go to, to Adelaide. So um, we are in a smaller venue than I would ordinarily be in, which means it is going to sell out. So if you want to come and see me do my show, Will Informed, in Adelaide, buy a ticket now. Get in quick. Do not miss out. After that, I'll be touring right around the country. Um, if you cannot come to a show, but you do want to support this podcast, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash willosophy. Um, chuck in a buck, a buck a month or so. Helps us keep the lights on and pay everyone who puts this podcast out. Uh, enjoy this one with Corey Tut. We were talking about fun things <laughs> instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're good to go. Yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. All right. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, today's guest, well, this is how we start. He says that he's heard the podcast before, so I didn't need to explain to him how the podcast is going to start. I'm going to ask you who you are. So who are you? Um, I'm Corey Tutt and I am the founder of Deadly Science, um, a program encouraging Indigenous kids into STEM. And, of course, the uh, New South Wales Young Australian of the Year. And that too. Uh, equal last and equal second to Ash Barty. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> big fat loser. That's what you are, Corey. I'm a loser. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, <laughs> when I booked you on this podcast, I assumed you were going to beat Ash Barty for Young Australian of the Year. Well, we couldn't get Barty, so we went down the list of Young Australians of the Year. We got to you, Corey. What can I say, budget cuts? <laughs> 
now, Deadly Science is the T-shirt that you're wearing, and it's also how uh, you first uh, came onto my radar. In fact, you reached out to me through some stuff that you were doing for Deadly Science. So explain to people, let's start there, because I think that's as good a place as any to explain you know, who you are and, and, and why people are paying you attention at, at the moment. What is Deadly Science? How did it start? How, why you? Why now? What's going on? So Deadly Science is um, basically empowering Indigenous kids everywhere, so over 100 communities now, um, into STEM. Because traditionally, you know... When you say STEM, let's keep this... Because there's people listening overseas as well yeah. who, who might not... You know, know the terminology STEM. So when you say STEM, what do you mean by that? Science, technology, engineering, and maths. Mm-hmm. And so science, um, science traditionally for Aboriginal people, we've sort of been pushed into arts and sport. And it's actually, it's a bit weird for me because we are Australia's first scientists. You know, we've got the world's first fish traps. We've got the astronomy, how we use the dark emu to hunt. Um, you know, we've got irrigation systems. We're, we're an advanced civilization. So um, I started... So I, I'm an Indigenous guy and I started off working in the zoos. I sheared alpacas for four years and I always wondered why I never really met any other zookeepers or scientists that were Indigenous. And about three and a half years ago, I started talking to kids in Redfern through the AIM program, which is Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. And when I talked to them, like, you know, there's a space station in the sky. And they're like, no way. And then you'd pull out your phone and you'd show them the space station. And the, the questions would flow on from there. And I actually Googled most remote schools in Australia and I found out how just greatly under-resourced they were. They didn't have many science books at all. So I packed up every book I owned and I sent them off there. (laughs) And it just sort of grew from there. So, okay, but that's a very simple way of you saying it grew from there. But there's got to be, what's the moment where you go from, because there's so much of that I want to unpack, but... What's the moment where you go from going, this is amazing that I can tell these kids about the universe, you know, the, 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 the stars, the sky, things that, as you said, like, you know, we actually hear a lot of stories of in Indigenous culture, even what we know about that is, you know, and as you say, the more remote you get, the more that you look at the sky, yeah. the more you can see the sky, Definitely. you can understand the sky. So to be able to explain to people some of the mysteries of the universe, or at least tell them that this thing is out there that they can ask all these questions about is pretty exciting in itself. Uh, what was that moment? What made you think I'm going to show, you know, these guys a picture of a space station in the sky? Well, <clears throat> the moment was, was when I, we started talking about these space stations and they just didn't believe me at all. They're like, no way, there is no space station. And these are kids, are teenagers from the city. So you can imagine kids in the bush, they're like, space station, what are you talking about? Um, and then you show them like a picture of a glow in the dark mouse and you think, wow, well, how do they do that? And they would ask you questions and then you sort of prove to them Firstly, it is real, but then you've got to prove to them that they can do it, which is even another can of worms that you've got to open because, you know, most people and most of these kids in community and in the city feel like science is all lab coats and, you know, you have to be this really smart person to be a scientist. But, I mean, I know a lot of scientists and they're not all that smart. Uh, so what makes you go from showing these kids these pictures of, you know, the sky, asking these questions, getting them interested in this, but to then, I'm interested in how the actual action from you doing this to you thinking, I'm going to Google these remote schools, I'm going to send some books. Like how, why did one of those things, why did that incident go to this next thing? I guess it was a part of, it was a part of me I saw in those kids, those kids that were just interested 
they were so interested in science. And I'm like, I sort of thought, well, why? Why aren't they learning this? Two, why haven't they learned about their culture and their science? And I wonder what the kids in the remote areas think of this. So it was kind of like a science question in itself for me. It was like, I need to learn what these kids in these remote areas do and if they love science and they do, they love science, science, you know, I was up at, you know, Gama festival. Mm -hmm. So I was up at Gama, right. And I was kicking around the footy with the kids and there was no wind at all. Right. And I go, I said to one of the kids, I'm like, where is this footy going to go? And he pointed to the left and I'm like, there's no wind up there, but he, there was actually wind above the surface and we couldn't feel it. And he knew it. He knew it was wind. So he was kicking the ball towards the wind. And I'm like, that is a form of science. I was like just amazed by that. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, one, we've got to change the narrative that Indigenous people can be scientists and we are the first scientists and we can learn a lot from what we, well, the lessons of the past are going to help us in the future, you know. So it kind of, that's how it sort of happened was like, I wanted to know these kids in remote areas. I wanted to know what they know. I want to learn what they learned. And I also want to share some of the knowledge as well. Okay, so let's then explain how you got to be interested in this in the first place. What's your backstory? Where, where, are, you, where are you from? Um, where did you grow up? How did you become interested in science? So my pop was from Camilleroy country, which is up near Moree in the north coast, uh, the north of New South Wales towards the Queensland border. And um, my mum kind of had a bit of a rough life and my dad wasn't around and she was sort of raising my sister and I and she never had the the best of everything. And so I got sent to live with my grandfather in South Australia, which is in, um, in Port Lincoln in Tumby Bay. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a lot as a kid. I didn't have any, really any toys or anything like that. It was more, um, I had reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> I had reptiles and animals, right? So I would, um, walk around barefoot catching snakes, lizards. Um, and I, I would, you know, I'd always ask those questions like, why does a blue tongue have a blue tongue? Well, a blue tongue has a blue tongue because it's the ultimate king of bluff. And blue means venomous in the animal kingdom. So blue and octopus, a lot of your venomous animals and plants are actually blue or violet. Okay, but the blue so but the blue tongue just has a blue tongue? It's not venomous? Is it's it? not venomous. It's king of bluff. Right. So it likes to tease people. And Is that right? Venomous. Yeah. And I mean, even as a kid, I used to... Would that work if... Because I'm having a little bit of a sea change, a tree change of my own. Would it work to keep away snakes if I just paint myself blue like a smurf? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> All right. But I mean, and then like, there's the other questions as well. So like I, the first, the first book I ever got was Reptiles in Colour by Harold Cogger. Mm -hmm. And I incessantly learned how to read that because it was all I had um, for a long time, a long part of my childhood. And I still remember page six and I think it was Eastern War Dragons. I still remember one of the facts from Eastern War Dragons. And, you know, they've, they're like the kings of suburbia now. They've fitted in so well to big cities because they get fed all the time and, but they they've, ha they've gentrified. They have. Yeah. And they've got this unique ability, though. They can hold their breath underwater for an hour. Really? Yes. So what they do is they get all these, they have these really big lungs and uh -huh. they get all these air pockets. And they can just hold their breath underwater. So I'm like, that's a really cool superpower, right? And um, then I, like, then you learn about all reptiles and they've got these partial eyes, and which is a third eye, but it's not actually an eye. They can see in color. So you learn all these little facts about them and then you, you might learn all you want to know about reptiles and then you might move on to birds or like bugs or, and that's how I sort of got into science was I was always trying to ask those questions. Cause I'm like, man, that bird's doing a cool noise over there. wonder what it's doing. And, you know, I started off wanting to be a zookeeper because I wanted to tell people about the cool things that these animals do. And, 
you know, and that, you know, that came with its own challenges, um, being an indigenous kid. And also I was kind of like, I was probably more interested in catching snakes in the paddock than I was probably at studying. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of practical, not so much theory. Yeah. Although yeah. it sounds like you were learning a lot. I mean, you know, you've, you've already said three more things than I remember from my entire 12 years of science <laughs> education at school. You know, I'll remember more from the first five minutes of this podcast about science than I did. Between you and Dr. Carl, you make up most of what I know about the scientific world. Um, I'm amazed about blue tongue lizards still. In fact, we could stop the podcast just with that fact today. But um, it, so, how were you being encouraged through the educational system? Were they finding a way to connect with your? Because clearly, you have a high level of natural curiosity about the world. So, to me, what that says is, here's a kid who you know wants to learn. Clearly, yeah. you're you know learning yourself. You're you know being inspired by this knowledge. You want to understand how things work. Uh, did you feel like that was being tapped into in the education system? Oh, look, and, and this is by no means the teacher's fault, but I, I probably didn't fit into the mold of their perfect student. And it was like, I, I was often, again, if I was reading, if I was in history and I was probably trying to learn about World War II, they're trying to teach me about that. I was probably trying to learn about animals and how they worked in World War II, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and that, that was, that was literally, um, it. And I was often told, like, I was obviously very, like I was considered very intelligent, but I was also considered a kid that probably didn't apply himself as nearly as much as what he should have. And the career advisor told me, sat me down near 10, he's like, you know what, you've got three options. Okay. You can leave school, go get a trade. You can leave school and go to prison or you can probably leave school and die. And it's like, oh, they're, they're pretty hard free options, you know? So I actually left school and I went to Western Australia and I worked in a wildlife sanctuary called Boyup Brook. Oh, it was in Boyup Brook called Rue Gully, sorry. And um, it was this crazy lady that was walking around with a rifle and she was shooting snakes, right? And she was putting photos, photos of herself online, shooting snakes. And I'm like, man, that's so illegal and also it's so unnecessary. And I was like, oh, I've got to change my mind. So I went there. And I spent a couple of months there and it was like, um, I finally got it. So start, how, how old are you when you're doing this? 16. Right? 16 years old and yeah. you've gone over there. And <laughs> I didn't tell my mum, by the way. So what? I went over without no. telling my mum and no. I worked at Dapto. It'd be Port. hard to pitch it yeah. to her. There's this crazy lady with a uh, rifle. With a rifle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, it was really funny because like. I never told my mum I was going and I was working at Dapto Pools. So I don't know if anyone, the listeners may know Dapto. It was on the South Coast. It's a pretty rough area. And I was working at Dapto Pools, working on the kiosk and pouring a bit of salt in the pool. And I'd saved up like, I think it was like a grand I'd saved up in like nine months of working there. Right. <laughs> um, I wasn't getting much at all, but I ended up saving enough for a, uh, to go over there. And the moment I told my mum was like literally a day before I was meant to go. I'm like, Hey, like I'm going to Perth. I'm actually not going to year 11 and 12. Sorry. I'm going to Western Australia and I'm going to go work in this wildlife sanctuary. Cause there's this crazy lady with a rifle shooting snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I must stop her. Um, I didn't stop her, but it was, um, it was interesting cause while I was over there, she agreed she wasn't going to shoot any snakes that weren't near the house. 
and then she got bitten by a snake. <laughs> and just threw it all in the works. Thanks a lot, snakes. <laughs> yeah, I was on your side. Yeah. I was trying to help you guys out. I turned her around and then you go and bite her. And the snake's like, mate, I'm a snake. Yeah. You knew I was a snake. Yeah. You I am a snake. <laughs> I didn't lie to you. I yeah. was venomous. Yeah. Um, but... um, so yeah, that's interesting to me, though, because it says something about your mindset, I imagine, that even the idea that you think in that situation, here's this, you know, banana situation. I'm this young kid, you know, I'm, I think that if I go over and, you know, talk to this person and, and explain to her what's going on and that, that she might change the way she's behaving, which yeah. is an incredibly ambitious thing to even think as a 16 year old. I, I guess, uh, like, because I didn't have a lot growing up, I had to fight for what I had. And I've kind of learned that, I've learned that for everything I gain, especially with deadly science, I've had to fight for. Like, I mean, the amount of doors that have been slammed in my face and people have told me no and I've sort of come back. And it's it's kind of, it was for as a kid to learn when you don't have a lot that you need to keep trying is a really valuable lesson. Um, especially, and that's what I sort of hope to put on to like, the kids I mentor now is like, don't, don't let others put limitations on you. Cause like when you, when you're a kid, right. And you're a little bit different or like you might not fit into the square that society wants to put you in. Um, you get ridden off by a lot of people. And sometimes there's kids out there that are super intelligent, that are really smart and you know, they're not necessarily like me, not crazy like me, but they just need that bit of um, guidance. And I think that's, you know, sort of what I've created is sort of doing that. You know, it's like saying, you know what, it's okay to like dinosaurs. <laughs> dinosaurs rock. <laughs> or like, it's okay to, you know, to like mass and, you know, and not be considered a nerd or like, it's okay not to like any of those things and like something that is a bit obscure. But as long as you like it and you're good at it, then it matters. How do you deal with, because I think that's a really important obviously message to give to people but it's a one of those things it's great to say but sometimes in in real life a little harder to enact yeah you know it's so often you go yes i do think dinosaurs are cool but you still if you tell somebody somebody's going to make you feel uncool for thinking that dinosaurs are cool so how do you what's your advice to those you know kids and those people that you mentor and the people you're you know telling your story to yeah of how to be proud of those things, to how to embrace them and how to, you know, I guess not just love them themselves, but be proud to say out loud that they love them. There was a conversation I had with a, a young, deadly junior scientist and it was from an Aboriginal community in Western Australia. And he said to me, he goes, I want to be the first Aboriginal geologist. So I got on my phone and I was Googling Aboriginal geologists and I couldn't find one. So if any listeners do find one, please let me know because I need a mentor. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? Like this kid's going to do it because I, I saw like there's a lot of passion there to becoming the first Aboriginal geologist. And I think that that is really cool because we were the first geologists in this country. <laughs> um, and I, I, my advice to him was that, you know what? I think that you should just try your best at everything. Just try your best at everything. And if you try your best and you do your best, then there's nothing more you can really put into it. You've done your best. So just try your best at everything and then become that because that's what you want to do. So I've just sort of been like, you know, when I've spoken to kids and stuff that hit 
you know, they hit snags in their life and they hit, and you know, I've been in that position as well. You know, when I left the Rue Gully Wildlife Sanctuary, I ended up becoming a zookeeper at Shawhaven Zoo and I lost my best friend to suicide and I hit a bit of a snag in my life. But, you know, that whole essence of not giving up because you want to make a change. And in a way, Will, I think science is a bit of hope because we've all got these questions that we want to answer. You know, we ask why, why a blue tongue has a blue tongue. And, you know, they are, there's something that provides us with a bit of hope, you know, um, if we're not asking questions, I think life would be very boring. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you another question then. Oh, no. Because uh, I, I know this is a standard one because yep. it feels like we've started to explore this sort of area anyway. So before we walk through, you know, what happened next, because I think there, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we'll want to unpack. But do you have a philosophy? Do you have a personal philosophy that that is the vague premise of this podcast that I ask people that question? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting one because I probably have I'm probably one of these people that have many philosophies, but I always good. It's a long podcast. If uh, you want to uh, <laughs> give yeah. me a few, I've got all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always gone by the the premise of my grandfather used to tell me good people breed good people. So if you be a good person, you will have an a profound impact on those around you. Um, and he was he was really great because he was an Aboriginal man, but he never he was against the stereotype. He never smoked, he never drank, he never gambled, never lied, was straight talker. And he was always um, big on me because he was like, he's saying, you know what, if you're a good person above all else and you're good to people, they'll be good to you. You'll meet some people on the lines that, uh, you know, are scum mm-hmm. <laughs> and that will take advantage of you. But majority of the time, if you smile at someone, they'll smile back. Or if you wish them a good day, they'll wish you a good day. And that's sort of the philosophy I've sort of lived my life around is that I've always treated people how I've wanted to be treated. And even if they haven't treated me the same way, I, I much rather be a good person than someone that is, you know, that goes against that sort of code because it, I'm a lot happier because of it. You know what I mean? It's a, it's an interesting thing that you've added there, which I, cause I mean, the idea of, you know, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a version of that in, you know, most mainstream beliefs, you know, because yep. it's, it's a nice essential starting place for human kindness. But I like that what your grandfather has added to that is that caveat or you've added in telling the story about the idea that if you are good to people, Unfortunately, here's some of the terms and conditions yeah. I've got to tell you about. <laughs> At some stage, people are going to take advantage of you because of your kindness and because of your goodness. But you are just going to have to deal with that. As Don't be put off being a good person from the fact that sometimes bad people will take advantage of your goodness. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's happened throughout my life. And I haven't lived that long, to be honest. I'm 27 years old. But there's been times where that's happened to me. But in the sense that... There's a real, you know, when you want to say there's a real screw you factor to it, the screw you factor is, is that you aren't going to change my personality based on your behavior. So if your behavior is poor, you're not going to change me because I want to be good. And, you know, there's probably times where, you know, there's times I kick myself and I say like, oh, you know what, that that person I met today wasn't very nice to me. But I also think about the stuff that I'm doing and I think, you know what, okay, I feel bad about this for a second, but I also have helped kids learn how to read. I've helped kids find science. I've helped someone in a community where I've never met read a book that they never had access to or look for a telescope or do something like that. So I, I tend to 
think about those things. And I think, you know what, if I get a bit of hate mail online and I get someone, you know, target my race or whatever, I think, you know what, like, screw you because I'm doing this really good thing over here. That's awesome. Yeah. Whereas you're writing to me on the internet. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You're hiding in your basement. We both did things today. I got a kid to read a book he never would have got to read before. And you wrote a racist message to me. So at the end of the day, who who wins out of that? Tell me about, um, if you don't mind, your grandfather, because it sounds like, you know, obviously he's influenced you a lot in, you know, the person that you've become. Oh yeah. Like he, um, you'll laugh at this, but every birthday, right? I used to get this birthday card and it was always a Bratz or a Barbie doll birthday right. card. <laughs> uh, and it was always like, it was always completely offensive. Uh, it'll be like happy. I'll be like 10 and yeah. it was like happy six year old, happy sixth birthday, Corey. <laughs> Hope you enjoy this card. But in every card, there was a $5 note and it didn't change right, right up until he died. Yeah. I was 18 when he died mm. and every year. And when I turned 18, it it got up to $10 and he goes, this is due to inflation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like, he was, he was very odd in the way that he never ate with a fork. He always ate with a knife. Like it was really odd. I've never seen anyone do it, but he was extremely clever where he would lay by the pool. We had a pool in our backyard or a dam or whatever it was. And somehow like my sister and I would always end up in that pool or dam. Like we would walk past and be like, look at that spot over there. And like, you'd go, oh, he's just doing this again. It's, you're going to fall for it. And like, <laughs> you'd fall for it the first time because you'd yeah. look at the spot and you get pushed yeah. in and you're like, you think, oh, hang on a minute. I'm not going to do that. But then he would know that you're not going to fall for it. And he would hide like a bit of like fishing line and you would right. trip over the fishing line, fall in the pool anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So he did all that stuff. So, I mean, he was, um, he was always really good. And like, I think the, the biggest thing I took from him is that, man, I used to talk a lot as a kid. I used to talk a lot about reptiles and stuff, but he always had time for me. Um, and even when others didn't, he always sort of said like, he always took, um, you know, he took an hour out of his week to call me. And, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole shame factor about being Aboriginal as well. When I was a kid, it was, you know, in the nineties, it wasn't, it was a bit different to now, as you probably know, it was, it wasn't a thing that Aboriginal culture wasn't a thing that was as celebrated as much. So there was always that, that bit of shame factor for me, but he'd always ring me up and be like, come on, get your gear off and have a cropper in the backyard of me. And he'd creep <laughs> me out like that. And like, you know, in a way I'm actually so grateful that I had that with him, even though at the, at the time as a kid, I'm like, this old man is my grandfather wants me to get in my undies and dance around the backyard. That's a bit weird. Um, but he, you know, he actually got rid of the stigma for me and the shame factor. And that was huge because there's a lot of kids in Australia now, even, or even before growing up, they're actually indigenous that don't know they're indigenous and they're actually ashamed of their heritage, which is not good. Um, but he was able to get rid of that for me. And that's the biggest gift. I, so while we're on this topic, let's talk about it now. Um, so you, you, you say something in that, that you say that it's different now to what it was in the nineties. And I'm, I'm pleased to, to hear that there is at least some positive movement forward, but there's clearly a lot of work that we have to do in this country to, you know, reconcile, you know, the original people, you know, and the way that we understand, you know, the original people of this land, the, the owners of this land, you know, the, the people whose land was taken from them, you know, by, by people who did not ask for permission and then, then have done a fair you know, job in the last 200 years of 
you know, disenfranchising and, and whitewashing stories and not letting, you know, stories be, be told. And like you said, diminishing the idea that, you know, that Indigenous people were, you know, scientists and, and did all these amazing, you know, farming and all these, you know, the way that societies were organised. We just didn't learn about those sort of things. It had been taken out of the uh, popular view of what it meant to be Australian. And, and very much, as you said, there was that real cliche of, you know, we, we like Indigenous people if they're good at footy or dot paintings. Yeah, but, but otherwise, uh, that's a, that's about that's about the role that we have in society. And then a lot of the other stereotypes were quite negative. And and I I grew up in the country. I remember hearing you know what kids would say. Uh, in fact, the first time that I ever got punched in my life was because a kid from another school had you know, used a term that uh, against an indigenous a, a friend of ours from high school, like a close friend of ours. Um, a, and we, we were at a school sports carnival and this big kid had come over and, you know, started using a whole bunch of language that we were up until that point really quite unfamiliar with, at least used in that sort of hateful way. And I remember stepping in just because I was the biggest, but I, turns out, was not prepared. <laughs> was not prepared for that fight. Thank you for taking uh, that punch. Well, it was, yeah. I could not be explained as a fight. When yeah. my mum said to me, did you get in a fight? I said, no. A fight would imply that I had something to do with it other than being punched in the head. However, I did get punched in the head. Um, but I didn't live that experience. That wasn't my experience. You know, I'm a white kid growing up in this country. So tell me a little bit about, you know, what, what the experience of, you know, being an Aboriginal kid in Australia was like for you and and what is it like for kids now? Well, I, I spoke about it earlier because I've actually got Indigenous blood from my mum's side as well. And my mum, until recently, has not acknowledged that she's actually Aboriginal. And we've got, you know, we've, we're actually fair-skinned. So, um, I mean, I, I probably look probably more, more Aboriginal than my, my half-sister, but it was... Um, you know, it was always a thing that it was kind of like a taboo thing in my family for ages. And if it wasn't for my grandfather, just sort of like being the influence and pushing that, that in that, you know, we are, this is who we are and we are proud of it. And it's actually a really, it's a really proud thing to be an, a first nations person. And I think, um, even, even in high school, right. When it got a little bit easier, when programs like AIM came involved and, we were still, I was still segregated into classes with Aboriginal kids and put on a bus with Aboriginal kids to go to the university. They're still saying, you know, we're not zoo animals. <laughs> and I think that a lot of the time when we were younger, it was like Indigenous people have been sort of like, it's changed a bit because now with the climate and the fires and all the things that have been happening into Australia at the moment, there's more of a, a need for Indigenous knowledges. And I'm saying it's about time, <laughs> but it's things are moving forward. But sometimes when you move forward, you have to hit a few roadblocks and hit a few roundabouts that slow you down. But <clears throat> I think most of Australia is moving forward to accepting Indigenous people. I think there was a poll done today if we wanted a treaty majority of Australians would, would want a treaty with their First Nations people. Um, so I think things are moving forward, but also at the same time, we are hitting a few roadblocks. I mean, you, the recent stuff with Bruce Pascoe, which I'm not going to comment much further on, is that, you know, the fact that someone's race is being questioned for something that a book they wrote is a bit 
bizarre to me. And I say that as a bit of a roadblock. We need to move forward. And moving forward is by accepting it. And I mean, if you think about the Egyptians, right? And if you think about the pyramids, we all go to Egypt. Built by aliens, right? Built by aliens. <laughs> and that is bad. No. <laughs> e2. Uh, no. Um, but, you know, we think about the pyramids, right? And we think, you know, we when we go to Egypt, we celebrate the pyramids. We go to the pyramids. We take photos. And... But that has, and the Egyptians know this, that has such a dark history of, you know, slavery, genocides, um, and they accept, they accept that bad history and then they accept the good history, which is these magnificent like, art, like artifacts that have been here for thousands of years. But Aboriginal culture is the same. You know, we've, we've got an advanced civilization in Australia that had the world's first fish traps. We had, you know, irrigation systems. We had a way of life that lasted for over 65,000 years. And we should celebrate that. But if, to celebrate that, you need to accept some of the bad and acknowledge some of the bad things that have happened. And, you know, just like the Egyptians do, just like the Aztecs do, this is, you know, we should be really proud of our culture. You know, we invented bread. <laughs> So, I mean, like, why isn't that taught in schools? So this is, and the, part, partly I, if I could speculate from my own perspective is I've always thought it is the greatest of shames because absolutely what you say is we can never embrace, we can never be proud of until we deal with the shitty stuff. Yeah. You know, you've just got to acknowledge the truth of what actually happened. You know, we've got to acknowledge that, you know, like you said, the bad stuff so that you can celebrate the good stuff. And at the moment, we don't get to learn these stories. We don't get to understand this good stuff. And as a country, you know, Australia, modern Australia, white Australia, you know, brown Australia, yellow Australia, you know, multicultural Australia should be able to understand, celebrate, learn about the fact that we are on a land that has the world's, you know, oldest surviving peoples. Yeah, That should be something that we're incredibly proud of that should be something as a country that we will only fully be a great country when we deal with this shame that we have and then can celebrate what is good about it and come to peace with it and and i think i feel angry not because it's obviously happened to me because it hasn't happened to me but i do feel angry and i think it's appropriate that it's not just the indigenous kids getting on the bus to learn about this stuff yeah you know that I feel angry that I've been deprived of learning these stories. You know, when I read Bruce's book, I feel angry that there's things in that that I never would have known about, that I never would have learned at school and that we should be, you know, learning at school. And then the idea that just because some other people don't like those stories, don't want yeah. to hear those truths, then they want to discredit the person who brought those truths to the table. Again, without getting bogged down in that issue, to me is just, it makes me so fucking angry, like yeah. outraged. And I feel robbed and I feel robbed of being able to truly understand, you know, the history of the country in which I live, which is anyway, that's my little, you know, middle-class white person rant. (laughs) I think, I think there's some, like, I think it's very valid, but like I didn't learn at school that there was 200 different Aboriginal countries in Australia. Um, I didn't, you know, I knew I was from Kamilaroi country, but I didn't know there was, you know, all these different countries that could fit all of Europe into it multiple times. And it's, there's this notion as well that, you know, all Aboriginal people are the same, but we're not. We've got so many different, you know, so many different flavors. And the beauty of our culture is that it is so, 
it is so different from the top of Australia all the way down to Tasmania. And I think that, you know, I look at New Zealand, right? And I go to New Zealand and I see all the Maori culture and they teach some Maori languages in some schools. And I'm like, you know, it'd be so cool if we could, you know, maybe not so learn so much Japanese and German, maybe learn a bit of native language. And, you know, again, you know, we can't change the past, but we can certainly learn from it and learning from our sciences to how we manage the land, how we, you know, treated our First Nations people to going forward. It's just only going to make us stronger if we learn from that. Well, how have you uh, followed this debate around the Indigenous fire practices? Because, you know, it, it feels to me that, you know, because Australia's been on fire, most people probably know that worldwide who listen to this podcast. And, uh, you know, you've seen the news, you've seen the images. But what people from overseas might not be as aware of is they've now been quite a lot of discussions around the idea that, you know, Indigenous people to this country have had methods of, you know, backburning, you know, managing, you know, fire reduction, you know, that that modern day Australia could learn a lot from. And suddenly there's been a discussion around that. Do you feel positive about that, that suddenly people are talking about this idea that this exists? Or is there a little bit of going, oh, for fuck's sake... Like you've literally not listened to us about anything and now you're like bringing this into the debate. Oh, by mean, by no means am I an expert on fire. Um, but if you go up to Arnhem Land, they still practice cultural burning. And the really interesting thing about being in Arnhem Land is that they encourage you to light small fires, <laughs> uh, which is an arsonist dream. Um, but they do that in the, the wet season, so that they, they, well, just before the wet season, so that the ground is burnt, and then there's it, there's no fuel for that fire for fires to come through. They still get fires, and they still get pretty bad fires, but nowhere near nearly nowhere near as bad as what we've seen in New South Wales and Victoria. But in saying that, I think it is positive that this knowledge is coming out now whether or not we can use it because the land is changed. This is up for experiment and it's a question. And I mean, if you think about it from a science perspective, that this is one of the questions that need answered, you know, we need to look back at our past to learn to, for the future. And, you know, the lessons of the past will be our, our answers for the future because there's 65,000 years plus of managing this land. But again, all Aboriginal people are different. They're, all the countries are different. So they all have different methods of how they manage their country. So we can't just look at it and say, oh, this this mob over here managed the land this way, so we should manage all of Australia that, because Australia is different. It is a vast ecosystem. You know, we've got rainforests, we've got desert, we've got, you know, rivers, we've got this huge country that was managed differently. And every single mob and country did things to suit their country and their environment. So if we are going to do an investigation in this, we need to look at look at it from a local level, not just a, you know, a level of, you know, it might be people up north do it this way, but what they do up north might not work down south because the mob down south did something different. Uh, so, okay, uh, we got a little distracted, but in a good way. Yeah, always. I, li- I like that. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how the podcast works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we left your story... Uh, you were on your way to a zoo. So you'd, uh, there'd been a bananas lady with a gun who got bitten by a snake and you've decided, <laughs> I've got to get out of this situation. Uh, so you've ended up at the zoo. What happened? So I started working at um, Shawhaven Zoo and I started working there. And I it was a really, look, um, it was an interesting place to work. Um, I think that 
sometimes, you know, you work in certain places and you think, how the hell is this like legal or a job <laughs> or like, um, and it was, I kind of liked it. And if you can, if I could just like get in your head a little bit and imagine the ecosystem that Shoalhaven is on, right? You've got the big Shoalhaven River running through yep. in Nara, which is huge. And it's also, um, it turns from freshwater to saltwater. So it, during the tidal changes, it turns from one afternoon, it might be salt water, and then the next morning it's fresh. Wow. So you get all these different types of fish. You get like brim and then you get bass. And I used to fish there every, my lunch break, right? So I really liked that aspect of the job. It was by far one of my favorite jobs that I've had over the years um, because you had rainforest and you also had desert as well. So you had all these, you had free ecosystems in one, like one area. But we also had this, um, there's a species of war dragon called a Gippsland war dragon uh-huh. and they're found down south and they're not native to Nara, but we also had this Gippsland war dragon that got out and he was breeding with all the native war dragons there. So we had these blue war dragons just running around everywhere. So it was, picture that, really nice. Um, but what happened was, is that I was there for a couple of years and then um, my best friend passed away. He committed suicide and I was at a loss and no longer did I, you know, I used to... You know, when, you, when you're a kid and you're running around, and you probably know this as a country boy, when you catch a blue tongue lizard, it's like the best thing that's ever happened to you. Or like, um, you know, you show all the other kids and it's, you know, you always get excited about that. But I never lost that. Um, and then when my best friend died, I actually did lose that. And then I, you know, the, the zoo was quite religious. Um, and one of the keepers down there sort of said to me, my mate's going to hell because he committed suicide. And that... Yeah, that, that really affected me in a way that I've never really felt before. I actually would see lizards and stuff and then I just lost enjoyment. Um, you know, the times where I wanted to tell everyone about this cool blue tongue lizard and point out all its cool features was gone. Um, so my stepdad saw an ad in the paper for an alpaca handler, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous and it sounds like a... Um, you know, a bit of a joke ad, but then I answered the ad and I'm like, oh yeah, like I'll apply for this job. It's lots of travel involved. It still gets to work with animals. And I, I kind of needed it because I was probably heading into a path nowhere fast. And, um, I don't know if I would have, um, I don't know if I would be here if I hadn't have chosen that job or it chose me in the end. So I went to this guy's house it, it was just a random guy's house answered this ad in the paper. And I thought it was a job interview. I was dressed in a suit and he goes, Oh yeah, you start Monday. <laughs> well, I felt like an idiot. <laughs> well, maybe you just saw how dedicated you were wearing a suit, and he was yeah. like, "No, nah, you've got the job." Or were you the only person? Who I was the only person to apply. <laughs> How's your mental state at this time, though? Because you talk about, and I don't want to dwell on the the loss of your friend if it's not something that you, um, but I've I, it, people who've listened to this podcast will know I've spoken about it a little bit, and you know it, I'm very conscious about the fact that th- these are private areas, and we don't need to go into things too much if you don't want to. Um, but I lost some people close to me in similar circumstances in the last you know twelve months, eighteen months, and you know apart from the obvious tragedy around it all, I was unprepared for the baggage I would carry with me from it. You know, in that, you know, just it's something that you think about a lot and it's something that really throws you off your axis in life to 
you know, and and so just you, you've given us a little sense of it. You know, you lost your joy for what you'd always been passionate about. But when you start this job, where are you mentally? Where are you? You know, in 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 your head, do you think? I was I was broken um, mentally, physically, um, and so much so that the first alpaca that we saw head butted me in the face and cracked my cheekbone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like um, the first, the first like we were like I was sort of the rouse about. I was helping pick up the fleece and I would help. We used to shear the alpacas on the ground. Okay. Um, some people have a table. It's really cool. We should Google that. But it's um, I. The first one I saw, I was just out of it. Like I just had no focus. And this alpaca just headbutted me in the face, square in the cheekbone and literally cracked my cheekbone. So I had like a, a crack across my cheekbone right here. Oh, sorry. I can't see it. It's a podcast. Um, I, I can see <laughs> yeah, that. But, uh, you know uh, what? Some of this is just yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah. And like it, um, it really hurt yeah. for starters, but also mm. that was in a way without sounding completely weird and like this alpaca was not trying to tell me something. It was probably trying to tell me to, you know, piss off. Um, Stop trying to shoot me. Um, It was a way that wake up to yourself because you, you've got something good here. uh, And just, and it was that whole not giving up. Yeah. And it's something I drew strength on. So not only. Sometimes, sometimes you got to get a head butted by an alpaca. Yeah. And like, um, you know, the months afterwards with a black eye, then people are saying, oh, who hit you? <laughs> and I'm like, his name's Pikachu. <laughs> and that was his name. His name was Pikachu, literally Pikachu. Pikachu. The yeah. Alpaca. yeah. And it was so, like a stud male too. So, so how, of course he was, how, um, how many alpaca are you like I, I don't know the mechanics of alpaca shearing. Are you she like are you looking after one kind of flock of alpaca, or are they bring alpaca? Is there people bringing alpaca through to be sheared? How does it work? Do you go to places to shear their alpaca? So we, tell me the mechanics of the the alpaca world. So the alpaca world's crazy um, because there's no money in it apart from stud fees, which um, we don't really need alpaca fleece in Australia because we've got a warm climate, but. Um, people are still trying to breed the best alpacas to get the best fleece. Um, but we traveled around Australia. So um, me and a guy named James Dixon, who was kind of like my, I would say he was my unofficial counselor. Um, there was many times that we would be driving in country Victoria and he'd be like, I'd just be out of it with my headphones on. And he would just slam on the brakes or turn on Spice Girls really loud because he loves the Spice Girls. <laughs> and, um, you know, and now I know all the words that I'll tell you what I want. What I really, really want. But, um, you know, and, but like we would travel around and then we'd go to New Zealand as well. So we got to go to New Zealand and there was times where like, you know, it, it, cheering alpacas was kind of like my unofficial degree in the alpacas. Cause I'll be honest with you, as a zookeeper that was feeding crocodiles and snakes, I did not think much of alpacas before I started working with them. And I'm like, well, oh, I thought they spit a lot. Yep. They poo a lot, which is what people see, but their spit is actually... It can be a compliment as as well as an insult. <laughs> um, you know, they they spit on each other to avoid pumas, right? So yeah. pumas have a really excellent sense of smell. Uh-huh. And also the males have these fighting teeth, which are like fishing hooks, and they use it to castrate each other. Oh. And uh, uh, I mean lucky you just got headbutted. Yeah, in, in yeah. I, I, I could have easily <laughs> been castrated. <laughs> um but yeah, we, we also sheared um llamas and guanaco, but like for me, learning a difference between a llama and an alpaca, and they're completely different animals. But to be honest, I felt that I thought they were always the same animal. 
<laughs> I was like, you're just the same animal. Um, but actually, yeah. So it's been, um, we used to like travel around doing that and from doing pets in like backyards to traveling to Harndorf in Adelaide, where they have the largest alpaca stud in Australasia, we got four and a half thousand alpacas and spending three weeks there and doing 16 hour days in the shearing shed. And the amount of stuff that would like happen, it was just, it was comical sometimes. Like I walked out of a pub and I, I'll be honest with you, I was, I had a few to drink and I walked out and there's this like, teddy bear, this power pole, right? And then the, I just still remember it and it scared the living crap out of me. This teddy bear just turned its head and looked at me and it was like a koala and I nearly picked it up. <laughs> um, to the, this dog, there's this like on one of the farms, there's this dog, right? And it was, um, you know how you, you, you're a country boy, you know how you have like the wool and you have these wool sacks and you put all the wool in the sacks mm-hmm. and they normally line, it would have been a newspaper and they put the, the Merino's wool in there. They do that with alpacas as well. And I remember one time I opened up the shearing shed and it was really cold, really frosty morning. And um, this head popped out of the, the fleece and the dog just like jumped in the bag and slept in the fleece overnight. <laughs> it scared the <laughs> shit out of me. It was really fun. Yeah. Fun for the dog though. Yeah, it was fun for the dog. Uh, okay. So you do that for how long? For four years? Yeah, for four years. So we had an off season and during that off season, I, I did stuff like I worked at the RSPCA. I did animal shows as well. Um, so I tried to tried to stay in the game a bit but I also um again I just lost the passion for zookeeping I I'd, I'd never really quite got it back um and I, I kind of um I did some study as well so I ended up doing um a, I did a certificate in animal technology and finished my zookeeping certificate off and I ended up um working as an animal technician and breeding thousands of mice and rodents for medical research but Again, I never really felt like it was for me. Like I never really felt that uh, this is this is my place. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess it's a, it's hard for a, I guess it's hard to actually get that feeling. Um, so that, that's where sort of deadly science has sort of made me feel that. So okay. Yeah. So well then. So do you go from alpacas to deadly science? Is there a crossover there? What's in between? So I end up becoming an animal technician mm. at the University. Oh, of Sydney. so this is when you're doing University yeah. of Sydney. This is how University of Sydney comes yeah, into the world. Yeah, and okay. I um I actually I was just sort of like looking after the mice mm. and breeding them and um you know helping researchers with minor little procedures and doing de- extracting DNA and you know all the boring stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was. It was always a means to, like, it was never like, it was, it was never going to be my long, like my long-term job. And I, when I started Deadly Science, so when I first started sending books, I actually got a second job to fund it because I was so embarrassed about doing a GoFundMe because I was, I never wanted to take money off people ever. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty stubborn as you could probably tell by the alpaca story in my cheek, mate. Um, and I kind of like, I said, you know, I've got to do something. And I asked, I asked numerous people, can I help you with your indigenous engagement? And a lot of people said no to me early on. Like if I had a dollar for every person that said no, it wouldn't work or like, no, go away or go and become, go and get a doctorate, go and become a doctor. Then you can have impact. 
I would be not here. I'd probably be on my yacht somewhere. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you'd certainly have yeah. enough money to fund, oh, I'd be fund all of... Yeah, Deadly Science would be fully funded <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> by the no-jar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in fact, you should do that in the future. Yeah. If you're trying to get something up, you're just going, we've got a little policy here. Yeah. That I, you know that saying, if I had a dollar for every time I said no? Yeah. I'm actually collecting those yeah, dollars. Yeah. So uh, if you say no, <laughs> one dollar it's going to cost you. Oh, make it five. Yeah, you know yeah exactly. A <laughs> yeah. note. Yeah. The smallest note will do. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of... And then I started working two jobs, right? So I started going up to this pet hotel in Duffy's Forest, which is in the North Shore of Sydney. Yep. I don't know if you know it, but mm. it... Um, and I started, like, picking up dog poo and working in reception and, you know, back to the, the roots of what I was working out in the animal industry and doing my job at, um, at the uni. And it was literally 35, 38 hours a week. And I would start at five in the morning, finish at two, and I would quickly run to the post office, post something off, put on my other uniform and go to work. And I did that for what, like nearly 12 months. And it, um, until someone said to me, actually, like, it was like, you should get a GoFundMe for doing this stuff because people will love it. So I got a GoFundMe and because people wanted to help. And then like, you know, my, I'd started working when I started doing deadly science and I sent the books to one school, they said, Hey, I've got a school over here. They need some books as well. And then it quickly increased from like one to four to 30 schools. Right. And then I'm like, Oh, I need help because picking up dog poo's not paying the bills anymore. (laughs) Um, and so I ended up getting the GoFundMe and you know, to date I've raised what $55,000, which has been huge, but that whole, that whole challenge to myself to actually allow people into something I've created is, um, it's been really hard because, you know, I, I'm a bit stubborn. I had this Superman sort of attitude as I'm going to solve this, but really it's a collective change. Um, we need as many people on board as we can to change the outcomes for these kids in these remote areas because science is for everyone. And I, I honestly believe that every kid should be able to look for a telescope. Even if they hate it, they should try it once or they should be able to read a, a book that, you know, they wouldn't have had access to. And I think that there's some value in that. And we, um, we also do these deadly junior scientist awards. I don't know if you've seen them, but, um, kids that are coming to school 80% of the term, we give them a certificate and then we get a buy on them. And it's like normally like half a page long. We find out what they're interested in. And then we send them something educational related to that. So in a way, that's kind of me as like a little kid being like getting that book off my grandfather and remembering every single page and learning as much as I could about that. So I'm passing on that knowledge, that that lesson that my grandfather passed on to me to those kids by giving them something that encourages them to chase what they're interested in. It's it's. I think it's the greatest thing that you could possibly do. I yeah. mean, just... I. I'd say this constantly is the major problem with our education system is that the thing that you need to know at the end of year 12 or year 10 or, you know, where whatever age you end up leaving school is to have a love of learning. Because if you love learning, then life will be okay. Because in whatever job, whatever pursuit, whatever thing you want to do, if you like being able to learn, to know things, to ask questions, then you will be okay, you know, pursuing whatever you want to pursue in life. But so often the education system is designed in a way that by the time people finish high school, they hate learning. Yeah. And it's because they haven't been engaged in that area that is passionate to them 
and, and so that's you're the complete opposite of that. Yeah. You're trying to find what are you interested in? What's this thing that you're interested in? I am going to inspire you to like learning through engaging you through that. Well, I'll tell you something really cool. So last year, um, our friend, Dr. Carl, he, we organized a trip for Jill Cominion School and they're down at Basin Catherine. They came all the way to Sydney and they, one of the first things they said is that we're coming to Sydney and we want to see you. So I, I planned this whole Sydney trip around their school and we went to the zoo and I, these kids had never seen the ocean before. Right. And they'd never seen a tiger before. They'd never seen an elephant before. So I planned all these talks. I researched all this information. Do you know a tiger's stripes is also an insect repellent? So, you know, and if you look at bees, right, bees have black stripes. Mm-hmm. They, and when they swarm in 70,000 to 80,000 plus, they never hit each other. So that's how the stripes work as an insect repellent because bees actually see stripes as objects. Have you noticed on some windows how they've got black stripes? On, yeah. yeah well, that's to stop birds. And, make, and let them know that it's a window because they don't actually know it's a window. That's why birds run into windows all the time. Going off on a tangent here, but um, I was, I, okay, I came up with all these like, cool facts to like um, engage these kids. And one of the kids, Alfie, is really funny. It made me laugh so much. Literally picks up a bush turkey at the zoo and goes, this is cool. Can we eat it? LAUGHTER <laughs> And then politely asking him to put the bird down. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so when did you feel like, so g- g- tell me, so firstly, Deadly Science, where did the name come from? When did you realize, you know, th- this is uh, what I'm doing and what I'm trying to inspire is something. It needs a name. It needs, you know, an identity. It needs, you know, an agenda of sorts. So where did, where did the term deadly science come from? So I played around with a few names and like a few indigenous names. And, you know, it was really when I was talking to those kids in, in Redfern and I, one of them goes, you know what, this is deadly. This science chat is deadly. And I was like, Hmm, that, that has a good ring to it. So I came up with the, and deadly for Aboriginal people, for your listeners that don't know, is, you know, and it's, it's also something we share with the Irish. So the Irish, um, think deadly for them is something that's cool, awesome. And it's the same for Aboriginal people as well. So deadly is a bit of slang. So I'm not killing kids with science. No, <laughs> no it's cool. That, I mean, I've said it before on the podcast, people that have heard it, if they uh, listen to them all, but I believe the coolest expression of all time and one that I wish that I could use, but I just feel like I, I feel like it's not my word. I don't have any Irish in me. I, I don't have any, I'm an Aboriginal. I feel like I'm caught between worlds where I'd love to say deadly casually, but I just don't feel like I've earned it. But no, it's a, it is one of the all time great. When you, when your friends, you know, who use deadly use it, you're always like, what a great word deadly is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's, um, and how I came up with a really cool logo was I was again, really, I probably had a, a couple of beers with my mates and I started like jotting down and it was actually going to look nothing like it does. Uh, it was actually going to be like a blackheaded python cause you know, they're, they're a solar panel and they, they turn into a nocturnal species by having a black head. Really cool. But also in the fact that I was kind of like you know what? I'm actually not a very good artist. <laughs> uh, so my cousin actually um, helped sort of design the logo and 
gave it what it was and she sent me the first draft and I'm like, yeah, that's fine. And I just took it. (laughs) 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 And that's kind of how it happened. She like rendered it and made it look semi-legible and she's like, no, surely you just want to let me touch that up a little bit because you've still got the pen lines on it. Like, I'm like, no, it's fine. (laughs) Um, And then it just, it turned into like, and one of the things with Deadly Science is that I want everyone to feel part of it. And I know you're saying that you don't use the word deadly, but you're literally part of this by being part of our program, you know, by liking this stuff or, you know, having me on this podcast, you're part of it. And it's not about being Aboriginal or not. It's about giving every kid the opportunity to learn and find science and learn their history. And if you believe that, then you're part of it. And, you know, I, like I am the face of deadly science and that's, you know, in the, in the early days, I used to have meetings with my colleagues and, and I'd say, Hey, like, this is not about me. And then unfortunately it became about me because I won some awards, but it's always been, I wanted people to feel part of something. And there's a lot of people out there that said to me, Hey, like, I don't know how to help Aboriginal people. I'm like, don't help us, empower us, come with us because we're already doing it. And if you're either with us or against us, and you, you're probably better off being with us than against us. So, we're, you know, these kids that I work with, they, we, I don't know if you've seen the episode of Scope, the children's show, Scope TV. No. It's like on Channel 10. Right. And my friend Lee Constable is like a really close friend now. She's And I was actually a guest host on it for one of the Indigenous episodes. And I said to the kids, I'm like, hey, how about you be on the show? Like you write your questions in because there's stuff that people want to know. Like what is a buffalo's horns made out of? What are a buffalo's horns made Keratin, out of? Keratin, same stuff as your fingernails. Oh, really? Yeah. And does it hurt if they get removed? Yes, it does because they grow and they grow blood vessels. That's how they grow, right? Or how to, yeah. Do they bite their horns like fingernails? No, yeah. no, no. But they, um, they do get cut off though by people. Oh. And, but um, I think that, you know, and those are questions that people want to know. Yeah. The general public, that's a, that's a proper science question there. Most adults wouldn't know the answer to that. Um, you know, wh- how does a saltwater crocodile live in salt and freshwater? Like it has this salt gland that excretes salt, you know, and that's a really cool behavior that most people would not understand that a saltwater crocodile actually lives in freshwater crocodile. And these kids have actually had their classmates, some of their classmates taken by crocodiles in the past. So to learn about crocodiles is really important. I think, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, towards the end of last year, I do Skype sessions with the kids as well. So I work back extra hours at the uni so I can do a Skype session on a Friday. And I go, I said to the kids at Pernalula and the Kimberley, choose any topic you want. And they go weird and wacky frogs, but make sure you put cane toads in there. So, cause again, cane toads into their community and they want to use science to stop these cane toads from destroying everything they've known um, for the ecology there. So, we, um, we did this talk and I'm like, I'll do it, but you got to attend school for all of term four. So I put the expectations really high. They didn't just meet the expectations. They obliterated it. And they also chose 20 species of frogs that they wanted to talk about. And we did it together. And, you know, I guarantee if you, if you, all your listeners Google Indian purple frog, you'll be shocked. <laughs> and it's like this, it's this frog that looks like an elephant <laughs> and it eats ants. But anyway, these kids like found these species, but they, 
you know, they're now investigating whether to use sausages that are tainted with nauseating drugs, uh, cane toad meat, to trick animals into believing that that cane toads are bad, not to eat them. And then they're learning about Rikalis that are flipping cane toads over and doing surgical precision, eating all the organs and just leaving the cane toad like flat out, cleaned out with all its organs. And these Rikalis have learned how to eat cane toads. So they're learning about all this stuff. And kids in the bush are smart. <laughs> they're highly intelligent. They are really gifted. Um, and kids in the city are as well. But the kids that we work with are bilingual. English is their third or fourth language. And I don't think people really understand that. They think, oh, yeah, the literacy and numeracy levels are low for Aboriginal people. And that's true. But it's English is the third or fourth language. Yeah. I'm not going to go to France and be top of the class. <laughs> I might eat the frogs okay, but, <laughs> but I'm not going to. And you'll eat, be yeah. able to tell them some interesting facts about the frogs before yeah. you eat them. <laughs> Needs more garlic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, how, what's the starting point that you have? What's your philosophy, if you will, about engaging kids in this material? You can't be what you can't see. So if you can see it, you can be it. And for a long time, these kids haven't been able to see what they can be. And I'm allowing them to see what they can be by doing Skype sessions, by getting Dr. Carl involved, by getting um, Professor Brian Cox involved. By getting these people that want to see young people succeed from remote areas to to help them see what they can be, and you know that that's a really big thing for me is that if you can't if you can't see it, let's make you see it, and then maybe one day you can be it. What's the hardest hardest part of it? What's the what and you can probably broaden this out. It doesn't have to be about the the actual imparting of the knowledge, if you like. It could be about the, you know, the organisations and systems around which you know you're trying to build to, you know, put this in place. But what are you? What's the biggest challenge of what you're doing through Deadly Science? Um, the biggest challenge for me is I've had like people can say what they want about me. They can say I don't have a degree. They can say I don't have. I'm not a doctor. They can say anything they want about me and they can say I'm not qualified. They can say all these things. It doesn't really matter. But the hardest thing for me is that when I sometimes talk to school principals and they say, don't bother with our kids because our kids are too naughty or they're, they're not going to be, they're not engaged in the learning. And then it takes a while, but then you prove those principals wrong because, you know, the kids are, they're engaged in what they want to know and what they want to be. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, the doors will shut. People will tell you no, and they'll tell you that your idea is not good, but you kind of had to, it's a litmus test, you know, and I'm in it for the long haul. And it's not, it's, you know, we work with kids from primary age all the way up to high school, but I, I'm going to keep going and keep inspiring them until they are adults because it's important. And how does that responsibility because that's you know you said originally you don't want this to be about you but and of course it isn't it's about so much more than just you but when you become the figurehead for something like this there is part of the responsibility for you know publicizing it for growing it for being able to get the resources that you need to be able to do it properly to Mm. you know give access to deadly science to more than people than are already able to access it part of that Part of the process of doing that means that you have become this spokesperson, this figurehead for it. Like, how is that responsibility for you? Because you are now, you know, a public role model in this space as well. And that, 
I, I'm sure comes with its own challenges as well. Oh, definitely. And like, I still do all my social media. So I do all of everything from writing the emails. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes you get a bit emotionally exhausted because, you know, especially, you know, I had the Australian of the Year awards that I was a big part of. And, you know, I have all these conversations and sometimes I feel like, um, I feel like it's it's sort of the same with the kids. Is these people need to see it so they can believe it, you know. And you know, there's a lot of people that believe in what I do, and the support I get is absolutely wonderful. But until people see, like, see what I see in those kids, then they never truly understand the impact that deadly science is having on those communities. Like, I got one kid that you know, unfortunately lost a really close family member and the school messaged me like, what can you do to get her back to school? And I, we sent her a pencil case. We sent her a letter and she didn't know how to read last year. She now knows how to read. She's one of the best in the class. And it's that personal approach. And though you can give me any accolade in the world, but I know that I've had a profound impact on that little kid's life. And that that's more important to me than anything else. And it's not just me that's had the impact. It's, you know, it's the people that have, that follow me. It's the people that love deadly science. And it's become, you know, the really interesting thing, Will, is, is that, and the thing that really I've sort of started to realize now is that there's so much negative press out there. Like every time you open your phone, you see something bad. You know, you see something about the fires or you see something about, you know, a politician being a dickhead, like, which is quite common, right? But now people are opening up and they're seeing deadly science and they're seeing a kid with a book or a certificate or looking for a telescope or they're seeing a nice tweet and they're getting something back that they're, is completely different to what they're reading and it's positive. And, you know, this earth can be a really shitty place sometimes. Like, I'm not going to deny that, but there is a lot of good that's happening. And, you know, and that's what I kind of when I think about deadly science and I think about the impact it has, I think, you know what, there is a lot of great stuff in Aboriginal communities still to this day, despite everything that's happened and there's so much positivity that you can grab out of that. And I think we're all used to reading such crappy headlines and bad news that, you know, when people see a positive tweet, they, it actually has a profound impact on them and they feel like they want to be part of it. And that's really magical. Talk to me about the idea of mentorship because you become like, you know, now, like, you know, you're having a mentor role for a lot of people. Do you have mentors of your own? Do you have people that you can go to and ask for advice that can help push you in the right direction, can be that sounding board for you when you have those frustrations? Yeah, like I've got a bit of a deadly science family and... You know, originally my mentor was probably my grandfather. And then I had a guy named Paul Sinclair, who was a zookeeper at Taronga Zoo. And now I've got, you know, I've got Katie Moore, who's sitting outside the studio. And she's the kind of, and along with my partner as well, if my head's getting too big, they'll put a pin in it and then pop it. (laughs) You know, and there's, you know, there's a number of people that offer advice and, you know, help me out where I can and, you know, the beauty of it is, is that they're not telling me what to say. You know, I say what I feel and I'm very genuine in that. And like, I have always, 
I've always said kids make the best scientists because I always ask the questions. And I think going back to what you said about, you know, people not wanting to learn when they leave school, there's something about that as adults we lose is that to question, like, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why do, you know, blue tongues have a blue tongue? Why do bush turkeys have a thermometer in their beak so they can test how hot their eggs are going to be and if they need to kick some dirt off their mound or put some on, you know, that's... We lose a part of that. I could not agree with you more about that natural curiosity thing. I, I, I often say it in stand-up. It's it, it's easy to come up with new jokes when you're in a foreign environment yeah. because suddenly you notice all those things that are unusual about a place because it's not like where you are from. It's why international comedians will come in and notice three things about trams that people who catch trams never notice because we're so used to we've, – we've, we've gone beyond that point of asking that question. Yeah. Why of looking at the sky and asking why it's blue? I've, I'm 46 years old, and I decided I didn't need to know why a blue tongue's tongue was blue until today. And now that I found out, I, I'm disappointed I did not know for all that time. But you're absolutely right. It is that time when you can engage people on the idea of yeah curiosity at its at its basis form, and the idea of you not being you know an expert expert. As in, like, you know, if people want to say, oh, you don't have this specific qualification or you're not both. But you're engaging on the level that people need to be engaged on, which yeah. is that first and foremost, that level of, you know, I am curious about this. And then let's go and find the answer. I might be illiterate, but I'm bloody intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, see, that'll make a James Fosdyke picture. That's uh, all right. <laughs> now, uh, so what next for Deadly Science then? Because uh, I want to... Um, uh, wrap up the sort of the deadly science aspect of this chat. And I'm going to ask you a few of the standard questions that I ask everybody as well. So um, what, what, for, yeah, obviously you've just had all the stuff with the Australian of the year. Um, what, what happens next? What are your aims and ambitions for 2020 in regard to deadly science? You know, what are the areas you're looking to grow? What are your hopes for what you can achieve going forward? I want to increase the impact that I've been having um, for starters and I want to continue the good work because there's no point like I've already got the wheel. There's no point reinventing it, um, but I want to add a few things to it. I want to teach kids how to grow food sustainably. You know, did you know that a cabbage costs 25 bucks in community? And that's that's wrong. A cabbage. A cabbage or a lettuce or, and it's not even fresh, you know, fresh food is really yeah. expensive. Um, you know, to get cupboard milk is like what, $6 and it's half off. Mm. I want to, I want to have those sort of profound impacts long term. Um, that's that's really long term. I want to be able to help reduce the cost of food in community, but also I want, I want to continue to just empower kids to believe in themselves. Um, I need funding to do that, unfortunately, to make this my job because it's not my job full time. And how how does that how is that funding going to happen? Well, what, what's the yeah, you know, what if if there was a magic wand scenario? Like, you know, I like always like to ask this question because who fucking knows? <laughs> yeah, you know, what would be the ideal scenario? Oh, uh, the ideal scenario would be that, um, you know, we're we're, we're going to apply for DGR status to so become a charity, but you know, the magic wand would be for you know some of those rich billionaires that that are feeling a bit of guilt for mm-hmm. what they've done. Um, will open up their hearts and their wallets and help really fund this program with no, you know, with no, with nothing in return, just the fact that they want to see kids succeed. Um, and that's, you know, I don't, 
either way, with or without them, it's going to happen and I'm going to keep going. And that's, um, you know, I want to actually get out to these schools as well um, and visit them. And, you know, when the kids from Jorkaminion came down, they saw me for the first time. It was like we've been friends for like 15 years. Mm. And I know that I know that we can actually have a profound impact long term. It's just a matter of finding the right revenue streams. And again, I don't really particularly, I don't want to, I don't want to be someone's poster boy when they've got a hidden agenda. I want, this is my agenda and my agenda is getting kids to believe in themselves and believe in science. And I'm going to stick to that, you know, and if my head needs popping a bit, there's people there that will pop my head. (laughs) Uh, What do you believe happens when we die? I ask this question of everybody. Um, I'm not, I'm not particularly religious. Um, and I think that that's due to probably some of the trauma I've had as a kid and as an adult. And I think that, I think we've only got a really short time, like in, in comparison, what we've, you know, on average, we'll probably live to 75 or whatever. And that we haven't got a lot of time to make a difference. And I think when we die, we, we've got to leave some sort of legacy. So, you know, so the vain part of us will believe that people keep talking about us when we're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, I think that, yeah, I, I think that it all, we all just go sort of go back into the earth and it it continues, you know, I don't really, I've never really believed, like, I mean, I, I'm sure that there was something much greater than us out there, but I've never really believed in the traditional religions. Uh, can I ask you what what do you think your biggest weakness is? Um, that's I've got a lot of weaknesses, and I mean I'd make an awful Power Ranger. <laughs> 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 but um, my biggest weakness is is that I I put in so much effort in a lot of the time, and I think you get a bit of compassion fatigue and that sometimes, sometimes the dominoes don't fall your way and that, that comes frustrating. And I think that, um, I also talk a lot as evident by this podcast. Um, well, it would be bad for this podcast <laughs> yeah. if you did not. <laughs> um, but I think that, yeah, my biggest weakness is I probably try a bit too hard sometimes. And I think that, you know, if I've taught one kid how to read, I want to teach a hundred kids how to read, but I don't normally pat myself on the back for that one kid because I see a bigger picture. And even at the awards, um, I didn't really deserve, didn't really think I deserved to be there. But the fact is someone nominated me to be there and it's really hard for me to acknowledge that. Um, so I guess it's becoming a bit more open to when people pat you on the back because majority of the time they're giving you a kick when you're down. So you got to take the wins when you get them. Uh, okay. And is your greatest strength, what would you say that is then? My commitment. Yeah. I mean, two I, sides of the same coin a I, bit, aren't they? Yeah. And it's, it's a bit of a toss of the same coin. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my greatest strength is that I, I leave, I, I, well, I try to leave an impact on everyone I talk to. So whether it's you, Will, and you think, oh, wow, this Corey's a bit of a dickhead. Mm, right. or it's, uh, it'll, it'll be the blue tongue. Yeah, the blue tongue. <laughs> you know, the blue tongue. Uh, or... I will be passing that off as my own bit of knowledge. <laughs> well, that, that's how it works. Yep. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that's, you know, I always try and leave a positive impact on everyone I meet. Even if it's a, 
completely negative experience. Always, like I remember once I had a real estate agent that took my bond <laughs> and she was completely, it was completely illegal, right? Because she owned the property yeah. and didn't tell me. Um, and I just said, you know, uh, even though I'm like thinking, oh, wow, she's a massive cow. I was like, have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's kind of what I what I sort of try and do. I try and leave an impact. And then I want people to think, wow, like, you know what? I, I, when I, when I think of me, like when they think of me, they think, oh, wow, that was a really positive person. And even though I'm not positive all the time, I think that that's what I want to leave. Uh, when people speak of you behind your back, what would you hope they are saying? I hope that they're saying, I can't wait to get rid of him and drag him out the door. <laughs> 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 no, no, I, I, I kind of... I hope that they're kind, but I try not to think about it because the truth is it was always hard to take. <laughs> no, no. Um, I think that, yeah, I hope that they just leave a positive mark and they think, wow, like, you know, this is a guy that hasn't had a lot that's had a bit of a rough childhood and, you know, trauma. He hasn't had it all go his way, but he's, he's also, he's just trying, you know, and that's, he's trying his best. If you, uh, we've spoken about superpowers a couple of times in yeah. this, uh, in this chat, if you could take a superpower from anyone, it doesn't have to actually be a superpower. It can be if you want, though. But, I, but I mean, if there's a strength that somebody else has that you could have as your own, what would it be? Um, there's so many people that like I would, I take things from that, you know, that are superpowers. But you know, I, I actually think of Dr. Carl quite a bit, mm. and now. A lot, a lot of people would know this, but this this man gets a lot of hate, and he puts himself out there. He goes on the radio. He doesn't know everything. He's honest about that. And you know what? He still has time for people. Mm. Of how busy he is, doesn't matter what skin color you are, where you're from, he will sit down and have a coffee with you. We don't always see it eye to eye, you know. And he doesn't, you know. And sometimes, I think, you know, I've been friends with this man for two and a half years now, and there's been times where we've been on the phone at 11 o'clock at night chatting and, you know, talking about, it could be just talking about poo because he loves talking about poo, right? <laughs> or like Antarctica <laughs> and stuff. But if I could take one superpower, I would take the heart of Dr. Carl because a lot of people don't know that about him, but he just gives his all to everyone. And that's, that's something that I really admire in him. Mate, this has been fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've loved I've, it. I've had a really great time. So um, I uh, I really appreciate that you came and had a chat with me. Uh, Deadly Science is what it's called. So people yep. can find You have a website? I have a website. I'm also building a new website, which is going to allow people to Skype scientists, um, schools to Skype scientists and book scientists in and exchange lesson plans online and hopefully with some funding. Mm. Well, the one uh, thing I know is that there's a few bloody rich people who listen to this podcast. So firstly, if you're involved in an organization that can help without strings attached, then <laughs> firstly, take that on board. But I, the one thing that I absolutely do know the case is because I do a lot of crowd work at my stand-up shows and it turns out a lot of teachers are fans of mine. So I know that there'll be pe pe people who are teachers listening yeah. to this. And perhaps there's something that you've heard today that you think, oh, there's someone at my school that could benefit from this. Or I know a group of kids who, you know, would would love to be able to access, you know, this sort of information and this sort of program. You know, that might be perhaps the most practical thing that comes out of our chat is that I know there are a lot of people in the education system who listen to this podcast and perhaps, you know, 
if 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 nothing else, you know, this is a level of engagement in you and what you're doing that they can take forward. Well, we might be called deadly science, but we also help non-Indigenous kids in remote areas as well. So um, I'm more than happy to to work with anyone. It's just a matter of, yeah, it's a matter of just getting in contact and having a yarn. Uh, okay. This is the final question. You've listened to the podcast before. You know how this works. I asked you the time travel question. So I have a time machine. Yep. I have one return trip that you can take to any point in history or any point in your life and you can either change it or just observe it. Uh, what do you do with your time travel trip? Um, so my grandfather's from Maury and he was part of the the ride up to Maury to allow Aboriginal people to swim in the local swimming pool because for a long time they were banned from swimming in the swimming pool and he hated swimming. He couldn't swim. I would go back in time and when they were allowed in, push my grandfather in to pay him back <laughs> for all the times he pushed me in the pool. Great answer. Thank you so much for this, mate. Thank you for having me.